This morning I'll be reading from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. messages would you think a person gets during the day? Well, we get emails, we get text messages, we get phone calls, we see TV advertisements, magazine advertisements, billboards, and a multitude of other things that we don't even pay attention to anymore. We receive a, an enormous number of messages throughout the day. We get messages telling us what to eat, what kind of insurance to buy, what kind of car to drive. We get messages from uh, lizards pushing insurance. We get messages from chihuahuas telling us what tacos to eat. We get messages from that family of bears pushing Charmin toilet paper. But along uh, with all of those messages... We receive a lot of other messages. God has delivered a message to humanity that is the greatest message that anyone has ever had the opportunity to hear. And the church is busy, or at least it ought to be busy, spreading that message to other people in the world. Now our passage this morning contains for us that important message, and it has been repeated for almost 2,000 years. It's the most important message that we could receive because think about it. If we do not receive those messages from the lizard or the dog or the bears or any other kind of message given to us, it's not going to change our lives that much. But if we miss out on the message that God gives us, it will change our eternal lives nonstop. It'll cost us the very souls that we have. Now that is the title of the sermon this morning, the message God calls the gospel. The message God calls the gospel. I want to spend a few minutes this morning talking about that message, trying to better understand it, and knowing how important it is for each of us to give that message to someone else. If that message is rejected, 
That will lead to eternal damnation in hell. If that message is accepted, it will lead to eternal life in heaven. It is the most important message. That can't be overstated. Sometimes we overuse words in this life like incredible or amazing or beautiful. We overuse the word love. We love everything, don't we? We love Food, clothes, dogs, cars, and each other. We love it. I think that's an overused word. But we cannot overstate the importance of God's message He calls the gospel. It is a specific message. It is a message that God intends for His creation to follow. It is full of demands for our betterment. When we consider uh, earthly relationships between parents and children. And that's the first introduction we have to a father, isn't it? In the home, uh, we understand in this physical life that our, that our parents require some things from us. And as young people, we may not understand why. We may be a little irritated that we have uh, things placed in front of us, barriers to prevent us from doing something that we might want to do because we're not fully grasping that that barrier is placed there or that demand is placed there for our betterment. But that's what the message of God is all about. He has placed it there. And it has some very important elements within it. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. Let's use the passage read for us and let's look at some of the elements, not all of them obviously, some of the elements that we find in the message God calls the gospel. And first, I want us to notice that it is a message of love. Maybe that's the easiest one to determine. In verse 3, that is a very clear and vivid uh, reminder of the extent of God's love. It's a message of love, and we learn to what extent God loves us in this passage. Notice what he, he talked about. He talked about the sinner prior to obeying the gospel. What was he? What did he do? How did he live his life? And we need to be reminded of the foolishness in which we once lived prior to obeying the gospel. That very same gospel that Christ, for which Christ died. See, that's the extent, isn't it? I think that's it in a nutshell. Notice what he said we were. Disobedient. Rebellious toward his authority and toward uh, uh, any authority at times that he has instituted. He said we were being deceived, continually led deeper into sin because of Satan and those who support him, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, being a slave to physical appetites and passions. He said we lived in malice, given over to a lifestyle of evil, without even realizing it. People who might uh, describe themselves as generally moral and upstanding people don't even realize what Satan has convinced them to believe. Well, as long as you're a morally upstanding person, you're fine. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? We have to be on God's side or else we're against God. We'll notice that in a few moments. We have to change our lifestyles to fit what God demands. And then we become what He wants us to be. 
Jesus demanded, if we're not for Him, we are against Him, Matthew 12, 30. Have you ever considered that statement? Let's look at the meaning of that. If you're not for me, you're against me. What does that mean? Well, I can't be neutral, right? There's no such thing as being neutral when it comes to God. We're either for God or we're against God. By not being for Him, out of necessity, we're against Him. Have you ever thought why that is? We're not doing anything to oppose God. We're not doing anything to try to hurt God or the church of which we read in the New Testament. So how could, how could it be stated that we're against God if we're not proactively for Him? Well, what about our influence in this life? Have you ever known someone who, who just didn't have an affinity toward any particular thing and they were so influential in people's lives that uh, they did not have an affinity toward that same thing? Or that they liked a particular thing and that person, other people were drawn to like that particular thing? See, influence goes a long way. I can remember years ago when we were up at Wheeler Hill, and I've mentioned this to you before, we had a young man there, a little boy, and he and I made good friends, and I would go visit with uh, the couple who were keeping him. It wasn't his mom and dad. They just allowed him to come into to their home because he needed someone in his life who loved and cared for him. And so he and I struck up a relationship, and, and we became good friends. And uh, someone, uh, we were having a fellowship meal one time, and someone mentioned to him, said, Y'all are nearly twins, aren't you? He said, Absolutely, we're nearly twins. And uh, he said, Well, how is that? He said, Rick's got teeth, I've got teeth. He's got thumbs, I've got thumbs. And then uh, my friend said, what about hair? He, he looked at me and he looked at him. He said, Rick's got hair on the side of his head. I've got hair on the side of my head. We were going through the, the line and, of course, he had to walk right by me and we were coming through and, and I said, hey, do you like rice? He said, no, I don't like rice. I said, boy, I like it. So I got some rice. He said, wait a minute, I like rice too. And so when we're not for someone and we just have a have an attitude of indifference toward it, that can lead other people to being that way. So that's just one understanding of if you're not for me, you're against me. Because we're not trying to promote what God wants. We are, in effect, hurting what God wants. He goes on to say, being full of envy, never fully satisfied with what one has, but always wanting more. See, we learn in the gospel that that that's not what we need. In whatever state Paul was in, he said he learned to be content. Everyone could use more financial uh, stability in this life, but we learn to be content with what we have. We put important things in front, right? We want to take care of our families. We want to be good citizens to our nation. And, and first and foremost, we want to be faithful to God. He went on saying, be filled with hatred. Well, being filled with hatred is a natural work of the flesh. We read about in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, being made manifest in those things that Paul described. And so, if we're not filled with the fruit of the Spirit, manifest in joy and peace and love and all those kinds of things, truth, well, it will manifest itself in those other things. He says also, hating one another. Walking without love for one's fellow man. Is that an issue in the world today? I think that's a big issue in the world. I think we live in a selfish world. 
But you know, don't be too depressed about it. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. Let's not allow ourselves to be discouraged out of our faith because Christianity is in the minority. Faithful Christians are even further in the minority because that's the way the world's always been. As far as I can tell, the only time when God's people outnumbered everyone else is when there were two people in the garden. And how long did that last? Not long. Or it doesn't appear to have lasted very long. And of course, that's what a sinner is. All of those things, to some degree, is what people are before they obey the gospel. Paul warned this, Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 1. He said, And you hath, and you hath he quickened. You has he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature or by habit the children of wrath, even as others. But what's the good news? The message that God calls the gospel can save us from that, can help us to overcome those things in our lives. That's the good message. That's the good news. And that is the extent of God's love. He didn't have to offer eternal life to anyone, did He? When we try to consider to, to what extent does God love us, well, let's look to the cross. That's about all we have to say, isn't it? The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. But He did offer eternal life. And that is an evidence of the extent of God's love. Someone might say, well, God loves you. Well, I want to know, how do I know that? We ought to question that. Someone says, God loves you. Someone says, well, God hates you. He doesn't care anything about you. He he created this world and left us alone. Okay, show me the evidence for that. Someone says, there are multitudes of gods in the world. Okay, well, show me the evidence for that. I want some evidence on why I know to what extent God loves me. He offered eternal life. Verse 4 of our passage begins, But after the kindness and love of God appeared to all men. We might say, in spite of sinfulness, God's loving kindness appeared to all men. There's evidence, right? To what extent does God love you? It's, it's innumerable. It's without... Uh, uh, we can't place a value on it. It's too great. How do you know that? In spite of sinfulness, God visited us with kindness. How did He do that? The answer is in verse 6, isn't it, of our text? Through Jesus Christ. God gave the evidence of His love for us by sending the Christ. Notice what Paul told those in Rome. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There's no greater evidence in the world than the cross. How do you know God loves you? Look to the cross. How do you know God cares about your eternal life? Look to the cross. 
How do you know God wants you to be happy in this world and in the next? Look to the cross. That's all the evidence we need to understand the extent of God's love. The cross, the cross, the cross. We don't have to have an experience. The denominational world says you have to have an experience. You have to feel that salvation. We're studying uh, church history in class on Sunday mornings. We're going to make our way over to Raccoon John Smith, who was a Baptist preacher, and or wanted to be, but he knew that he had to have a, uh, some kind of a calling, and he kept waiting on it because he was an honest man. He knew nothing had ever happened to him. And then they said, okay, we'll get up and preach. God will lay it on your heart what you ought to say. So he stood up, and he became frightened. He ran out of the house, and on his way out the yard, he tripped over a root, and he finally convinced himself that was God's sign that he had been called to preach. Man, by running away, tripping over a root, do you see what denominationalism will do to somebody? It will convince them of some of the things that, it, that are irrational. So we don't, we're not looking for an experience. We're looking for truth. We're looking for an open mind. We're looking for something we can read. We want some evidence to the extent of God's love for us. Let's look to the cross. Let's understand what Jesus did. Obey the gospel for which Christ died. That's the message. That's the message. That's the good news, right? The message God calls the gospel is Christ gave His life so we could live. That's the message. Why does God love those who hate Him? Why does He choose to save the undeserving, those who do not deserve salvation? Why would God give His only begotten Son so those same people can live, John 3.16. Because of His great love demonstrated by that very action. And all He requires out of us, simple obedience. Simple obedience to the plan that He has offered. People will spend hours and hours. They'll write volumes trying to explain away the clear speak that we find in the New Testament. That is perhaps the greatest element of this message God calls the gospel. But we need to understand another element of, of this message. It is a message of love and it is a message of life. It's a message of life. Can someone, can someone be loved yet not have the life that that person who loves them uh, wants them to have? Of course we can. Sure we can. I think my father always loved me, but I didn't always have the life he wanted me to have. He wanted me to, to live in a certain way, and I didn't always do that. I think it is a message of life because the believer can become cleansed. Someone goes from being a sinner to a believer, and that is a mark in time that has to be crossed. We can determine at the very moment we've gained salvation. Those who come to Jesus, Matthew eleven twenty eight, can receive life from the torment of sin and can expect eternal rest. That's part of that message of life. The great thing is God's message is very clear, right? Verse 5 tells us how we can receive cleansing. Let's notice what he says. Now, a great majority of the world misunderstand and, and, and try to skew 
this statement. But they have to spend a lot of time explaining away exactly what it really means. How do we become cleansed? Washing and regeneration by water and the Spirit? I read one denominational preacher's explanation of what Paul meant here. It's a little difficult for me to get through all of it, but I think it's very important for us to understand this. He said some people view the washing as speaking of baptism, as if those who view that are ignorant, not not smart enough to be able to grasp the simplicity of the gospel. He said they think that our sins are washed away when we are baptized. He said that's not what the Bible teaches. I'm going to disagree with that. I'm not going to follow along with what he says. I'm going to dismiss him and his doctrine completely. Why? We need some evidence. Don't take someone's word for it. He said some people think our sins are washed away in baptism. I think Ananias would disagree with that. Ananias went to a praying, fasting Saul of Tarsus Acts 22, verse 16, after having taught him the gospel, he made the very statement that this man denied. Saul, Saul, why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized to show an outward sign of your inner faith. That's not what Ananias said. Arise and be baptized, washing away thy sins, calling on the name of God. I'm going to disagree with this preacher. I think that we understand Ananias disagreed with him. And Ananias disagreed with him because God disagrees with him. And Ananias taught what God wanted. Now this particular denominational preacher spent a whole lot of time explaining why Ananias was wrong. Now of course he didn't put it that way. But Ananias said, be baptized so your sins can be washed away. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with what Ananias says. And that is a scriptural response to what this denominational false teacher taught. And I want to hear his evidence from the Bible on how baptism is merely an outward symbol of what the Lord did for us inwardly when He saved us by His grace. He can't give us that because it doesn't exist. It's not there. That doesn't, the Bible does not support His lie. In fact, the gospel includes baptism as a requirement. Let's notice quickly, we won't spend a lot of time on it. Baptism is a requirement. It's just as important as faith, Hebrews eleven six. right? It's just as important as repentance, uh, Acts three nineteen. It's just as important as confessing Christ to be the Son of God, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Baptism is important. It is just as important as living a faithful life 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. It is just as important. People spend hours of time explaining why it's not important. When we can read in just a few seconds why the Bible says it is important. When we are cleansed and given life, then we are completed. And that's what the message of God called the gospel tells us. And it tells us how we're completed. When we're cleansed of, of sin... And we are completed. 
Verse 7 reveals how we are completed. We're justified by His grace and we're made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does this word justified mean? Justified means to be rendered righteous. Rendered righteous. How many of you grew up on a farm? I can remember growing up and uh, we'd kill hogs in the fall. We'd kill hogs in the fall and at that time when I, when I was growing up, they used the hog not just for the meat, they used it for lard. Now no one eats lard anymore and I can remember exactly the point in time when I quit eating lard growing up as a child because food became terrible. Fried chicken wasn't good anymore. I've gotten over that. It's pretty good now. But I can remember when we quit using lard. Now, you know how lard comes about? It's rendered. They take the fat from the hog and they heat it and they cook it until it renders out everything that's not lard. That means the crackling, which is good. That means everything else. You scoop it and you strain it. You pour this lard in a vat and then you've got enough lard to last you till next time you kill a bunch of hogs. That's the same thing happens in the Christian's life. That's exactly what happens. We are rendered righteous. The things in our lives that prevent us from being righteous are rendered out. We're rend- That's what being justified means. And that's what Paul's talking about. Notice what he told those in Rome. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, and like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. I wonder how this particular denominational preacher would explain Paul's statement to those in Rome. If one is already justified, he doesn't need to be rendered Once you get the lard, you don't continually heat it up every time you want to use it. You store it and you dip a big old spoonful out when you make fried chicken. That's how it works. It's been rendered once. So if someone is rendered justified or rendered righteous prior to having his sins washed away, according to what Ananias taught, how can that be true? How can we support that with biblical doctrine? wonder what he would say about Paul's statement, Ephesians 1 verse 3. All spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus. If all spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, how in the world can someone be saved prior to being in Christ? And that's what happens at baptism, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. We're outside of Christ until that final act of obedience puts us into Christ. I wonder how he would explain that. Well, he couldn't explain it. You cannot enter into Christ apart from being baptized. And it is that last step that saves us. 1 Peter 3, 21. The like figure, wherein baptism doth also now save us, not to put in away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God. No one is justified. No one is righteous in God prior to baptism prior to having the sins rendered out of their lives through that process. I'm going to take the word of the Holy Spirit over over a man somewhere 
who spends most of his time explaining why the Bible is incorrect, and I know you will too. The message God calls the gospel is a message of love. It is a message of life, and it is a message of liberty. That's our third and final point. It is a message of liberty because the believer, through his obedience, has been rescued. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Prior to obeying the gospel, any person was on his way or her way to being lost for eternity. God saved us from that fate. He gave us the evidence of His love by sending the Christ. The man from whom we've been listening to his quotes, he would become upset at this point, wouldn't he? He'd say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. You said we were saved by grace. That's right. I believe that. He says, I say we're saved by grace. No, not at all. I think that we're saved by grace 100%. The problem is the opponents of God's truth don't understand grace, they don't understand faith, and they do not understand obedience. Notice what Moses wrote concerning Noah, Genesis 6, verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How did Noah find grace in the eyes of God? Well, first of all, he had to be looking for it, right? You don't stumble onto obedience. You don't stumble onto obedience. He had to want to find grace in the eyes of God. Second, he had to follow through on the demands that God gave him. He had to do it. He had to be obedient. The writer of Hebrews said, Hebrews 11 verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, did did Noah believe God? Well, I think so. How do we know that? What's the evidence? Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. 100% Noah was saved by faith. How do we know? Because he obeyed. He did what God asked him to do. There's a difference between a mental assent and believing. If we believe, we'll do it. All those other righteous people mentioned in Hebrews 11 did the same things within their context that Noah did. They simply obeyed. Uh, the, uh, the people that we read about, Abraham, what did he do? Yeah, I believe God. I'm going to stay right here in Ur. Not at all. What did Abel do? He offered a more excellent sacrifice. What did all those other people, what did the judges do? They did what God asked them to do. They believed, and we see that through their obedience. God gave us liberty when He rescued us by being resurrected. He resurrected us, didn't He? Notice what He said. He told us that God quickened us in the passages that we have read. When the gospel came to the world, it was dead in trespasses and sin. Paul said, Ephesians 2, 1, The Christ gave His life so we could live. He made us partakers of eternal life if we will do what He has asked us to do. That's wherein the resurrection is gained. We have been delivered from spiritual death, Ephesians 2, 5 through 6. And that is why Christians do not fear death in the same way the world fears death. No one looks forward to it. 
Because we don't understand a whole lot about it. We, I think what we fear is the process, right? I don't think we fear death. We fear the process. I don't know what it's going to feel like. Is it going to be painful? Is it going to hurt? Is it scary? I don't have any idea. But I know that if we were able to go into paradise and talk to Lazarus, talk to Abraham, talk to the Christ after he gave his physical life, and I'm not saying the Christ was sinful, but I'm saying he went through the process, they would all say, hey, don't worry about that. That's the least of your worries. It is great here. And that's what we want to look forward to. Go back to what Paul told those in Rome. Like Christ, Romans 6, 3 and 4. We have been raised up. That's the resurrection. Being resurrected after having put the old man of sin to death, being raised up to walk in a new life. We're new creatures, right? What does it mean to walk? What does the Bible intend when it talks about a walk? Well, in this context, and of course we have to look at the context, it means how we live our lives. Our walk of life. We are to walk in a new life. We're to live in a new way. Unlike this denominational preacher we quoted, God's message, He calls the gospel, demands that we live in a particular way. Let's go back to the doctrines they believe. Can't ever lose your your salvation. Whole and apart from what the Bible teaches. That's why we're to walk in a new life. We can lose salvation. That's why John talked about 1 John 1, uh, those who step outside the light, they need to come back into the light confessing their sins. And that's what James talked about in James five sixteen, confessing our faults one to another, repenting. We can lose salvation, so we need to maintain that. That's the walk. That's the walk of life. I am going to believe what the Holy Spirit says as opposed to what the false teachers of this world says. The message God calls the gospel, it's a gospel of love, it's a gospel of life, and it's a gospel and a message of liberty. And it's there for the taking. God's offered it. All we have to do is have enough faith to take advantage of it. We've talked about how to be saved. We've talked about how to come back if you've obeyed the gospel and you've fallen away. This is the message. God calls the gospel, and it's here right now for us to take advantage of. And if you want to do that, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.